chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 13. Remember, we are still in the last week of Jesus' life here. It's not going to be long from now that he is going to give his life on the cross for forgiveness of sins. And in this last week, he is, he is continuing the work that he has started. He is continuing to preach and teach the word of God to try to get people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to help people to understand that it is, that it is only through him that they can uh, be part of God's kingdom. It's only through him that there will be forgiveness of sins. It's only through him that people can be made righteous in the sight of God. Uh, Jesus, of course, has some that, that listen to his message and has heard his message and are following him. But what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is that there are those who are questioning Jesus, who do not like Jesus, who hate Jesus, and who try everything they can to shut Jesus up and to try to catch him in traps, to try to get him to say things that they're going to be able to say, aha, we got you. You said, you said this thing, and now uh, we have a reason to, to put you to death. Now we have a reason that we can turn the crowds against you. Now we've caught you in a trap saying something you shouldn't have said. And that's what some of these people who hated Jesus were trying to do. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to trap him. They did not like his authority. They questioned him, where does this authority come from? Uh, but there was really nothing that... Jesus was going to say to these crowds that was going to change their mind, at least I don't believe some of these who are coming uh, at Jesus attacking him, it seems clear that their mind has made up. Now, maybe one day some of these things that Jesus said, maybe they looked back on and they thought about them and they sunk in. And maybe they decided, whoa, wait, I've messed up. I've missed the Messiah. Hopefully some of this crowd that were accusing Jesus and attacking Jesus, hopefully some of them, hopefully all of them came to a realization that that was the fact, but that is unlikely. There, it is probably more likely that some of this crowd who attacked Jesus, who saw to it that Jesus was nailed to a cross, once Jesus was gone, they probably said good riddance. And for them, they didn't think much more about Jesus. And that's a real tragedy. Hopefully when we hear the words of Jesus, we don't do the same thing. Hopefully that's not our response. We don't hear what Jesus says today and forget about it as soon as we leave this, this, this building. But that we take Jesus' words we realize that what he said is truth. We trust him. We live by his words, and we live for him. And uh, whether we're in this building or outside of this building, hopefully we don't fall into the same uh, trap and tragedy that these did who came against Jesus. So that's what we've seen the last couple of weeks, people who are coming against Jesus, and we are seeing the same thing in our passage today. Here in these, these last few days of Jesus' life, things are really beginning to pick up. They are really attacking Jesus hard. So let's pray, and then we'll read through these verses. God, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for these words. And I pray, God, that we would learn something from what your word says. I pray that you would just hide me behind the cross, that you would take away any, any, any fear or any pride, any nerves, dear Lord, that I would just be able to speak your word. Help me not to ramble about, dear Lord, but to open my mouth and speak precisely what your Holy Spirit would have each of us to hear today. And I pray, God, that you would just be glorified in this place. I thank you that we can come, and I pray that these would be good words. And in these next few minutes, they would be good minutes, that you would help us not to be distracted by things of the world. You'd bind the, the enemy from our mind and help us to hear your word this morning, God, and let your Holy Spirit do the work in our lives and in our hearts. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> 
Mark chapter 12, verse 13. <clears throat> then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him to trap him by what he said. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and defer to no one, for you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus told them, Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they were amazed at him. Now, this is an interesting passage, a short little passage, but there may be more here than we realize. Jesus is approached by some who are looking to, to trap him. Now, we see several different people mentioned throughout Jesus' ministry. We see the, the scribes. We see the chief priest. We see the Pharisees. We see the Sadducees. And we also see in this passage the Herodians. And so here's a different group that's coming at Jesus who are trying to trap Jesus. And the Pharisees and Herodians come to him to trap him by what he may say or what they're trying to get him to say. Now, when we talk about the Herodians, that might not be a term that we use very much, but a brief background on who they are to help us understand maybe the context of what's going on in this passage. Now, it is uh, suggested by Josephus, a historian from way back, that the Herodians... Uh, at one point, way back in, in the day, uh, were descendants of Esau. Now, way back in the Old Testament, Abraham blessed, uh, blessed, was going to bless all people, or excuse me, God was going to bless all people through Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. He also had a son named, Isaac had a son named Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons that were the 12 tribes of Israel. And Esau's descendants moved to a different area, and it became known as Edom. The descendants of, of, of Esau lived in a land called Edom. Now, it has been suggested that those who were in the land of Edom, who were also descendants of, of Abraham but not children of the promise, that at some point in time, some of these uh, converted to Judaism. That is, they, they, they began to worship God, at least in some respect, how closely it's hard to say, but these descendants of Abraham from Edom at some point converted to Judaism of the day. And one of those people from, from the Edomite family line of Esau were those who were known as the Herods. Now, we see several Herods in the New Testament. Uh, different uh, Herod the Great would be probably the most prominent Herod that we know. And the Herods were, were in political power in a sense if we could say that. Uh, Rome was, was over everything at this time. But in the land of Israel, there was the king of the Jews, which was King Herod, uh, Herod the Great. Now, we most know Herod the Great because he was the king who wanted to have Jesus killed. When he heard the news about the star in the sky and that the Messiah was coming and was going to be king of the Jews, well, Herod didn't like this because he was king of the Jews. And so he tried his best to have the children killed in hopes of killing the Messiah who was to come. And so uh, we know Herod in that way, but there are other descendants of Herod that we see about in the New Testament. 
Now, Herod was, was the title for those uh, who, who were in charge of that area uh, of, of what we would call Israel. But, but they also worked closely with Rome. The, any power that, that, that the Herods had would uh, have been allowed to them or given to them by Rome. And so when we read about, about the Herods of the day, uh, we are talking about people that are in some way kind of Jewish, but not really Jewish. They're not really Jewish by blood in the same way that the people of Israel were, but they are kind of Jewish in that, that many, many years before they converted to Judaism. And so there's a little bit of a tension there between the people of Israel, uh, who, who by blood are Israelite people, and the Herods. And there's a little hint of, of politics running through all this too. Uh, while Herod may have in some way uh, listened to God and knew God's word, it's, it's clear that he was not a terribly godly man and that he tried to kill the Messiah once the Messiah came. And so when we talk about the Herods, we're talking about those who are in, in some political power but in some way have some knowledge of God, although not terribly godly people. And so when we see the term Herodian here in this passage with the Pharisees were the Herodians, we are talking about people who not necessarily were descendants of Herod, but people who followed Herod and listened to Herod in some sense. And so it is likely that these Herodians were in some way a little bit political. And so it makes sense as we read through this passage and see what's going on as to why we have the Pharisees, who would have been a very religious group, combined with the Herodians here, who may have been focused a little more on politics of the day and on worldly leaders of the day, and particularly that of Herod. Now, for those people who were Jewish people by blood, those people who were looking for the Messiah, uh, they didn't really like Rome very much. Now, Rome allowed the people of Israel to go about and worship in their own way, even though the Roman people were not godly people and Christian people. But, but the people of Israel didn't really care too much for Rome, and as a result, there was tension because of the Herods and because of their relationship with, with Rome and because of the Herods and their relationship with the Israel people. There was this tension there between all of these groups. So we see that the Pharisees and Herodians are part of this group that are trying to trap Jesus. And so they come to him and they decide that they are going to butter Jesus up a little bit. Oh, Jesus, we know, you are a, we know you're a great teacher. We know that you are impartial. And we know that you are a fair man and that you speak truth. You are a truthful man. And they are really laying it on thick. Now, the things they were saying about Jesus were true, that he was truthful, that he did not show partiality, that, that, that he did teach truthfully the way of God. They acknowledged these things about Jesus, which were true, but they didn't really believe these things. We see that in the parallel accounts as well as this one. We see this mentioned for us in Matthew and Luke, and the details are very similar. But Jesus recognizes that there is hypocrisy in their heart. They don't really trust Jesus. They don't really care about Jesus, but they're trying to make him feel good. They're trying to come to him with this false humility. Oh, you know, Jesus, we see your greatness. We come to you and, and we have this question we must ask you. We really, you know, want to know what the right answer is to this question. So what's the question that they ask? Should we pay or should we not pay our taxes? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, this seems like an odd question. And if, if, we, are to, if we are to say to ourselves, 
Is there any, is there any scripture in which Jesus directly deals with a political issue it may be that this would be the only passage that we could turn to, although it's not directly political. And in some way, it is somewhat political because the question here has to do uh, with government and paying taxes to government. Now, they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, when we talk about Caesars, we're talking about those who were rulers of the Roman world, uh, not necessarily those from the bloodline of Caesar, but, but anyone who held power, originally the title Caesar was to anyone who came from the bloodline of Caesar, and that was passed down, and those people were the leaders of Rome. The title eventually got put on anybody who became a leader of Rome, who not necessarily was a descendant of Caesar. And so when we read about Caesar or the Caesars in Scripture, uh, we are talking about those who are leaders of Rome. And so we, we, we kind of see things tying together as we talk about those Herodians and their relationship with Rome, with the Herods. Now we begin to see why the Herodians are mentioned here, why they are, why they are specified that they, were, that they were with the Pharisees because they would have probably been a little more concerned with the ways of Rome and the Roman taxes. And so they asked Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar are not. Now, this is kind of a trick question and that like some of the others we looked at, no matter what Jesus says, they, they, they think they're going to get him. If, if Jesus says, no, you're not supposed to pay taxes to Caesar, then they're going to say, aha, there you go. You're, 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 you're an insurrectionist. You're trying to cause problems. You're trying to get people to revolt and turn against Rome. We've got you. You've, you've, you. You're causing problems. You shouldn't say that. We, of course, should pay taxes to Caesar. Well, Jesus, of course, didn't, didn't say that, although maybe they were hoping that he would. But if Jesus would have said, yeah, you are supposed to pay taxes, well, then some of the people of Israel might would have turned on Jesus because some of the people of Israel weren't too pleased with Rome and the way Rome did things. And so, if Jesus would have said, oh, yeah, we need to submit to Rome and we need to pay the taxes that we're supposed to pay, well, then some of Jesus' followers may have stopped following him, which also would have been a success for these Pharisees and Herodians and others who hated Jesus, who wanted Jesus' followers to leave him. And so they thought that no matter what Jesus said, that they had him, that they had him in a corner, that there was no answer that Jesus could give to this question that would end up good for Jesus. But as usual, Jesus is too wise. He's too clever for them. He knows their hypocrisy, and so he answers in a way that certainly they were not expecting. It says uh, in verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you test excuse me, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So Jesus knew this was a test. He knew that they did not really have any desire to listen to or follow him. And so he tells them to bring him a denarius, that is a piece of money, a coin. He wants them to bring him this coin. And so they do just that. They bring the coin to him in verse 16. So they brought one. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they said. This is pretty clever what Jesus does. He tells them to bring one of their coins, and they bring the coin. And similar to what we do today, we look at our coins, and what do we see on them? We see former leaders of our country, former presidents, 
and and it was no different in these days. I, I suspect that the reason we still do it is because that's something that's been going on for years. Those who are in positions of power and leaders of a country are those whose pictures are plastered on the money. And that was the case for Jesus and the people of his day. They brought this coin to Jesus, and he said, all right, whose picture's on this thing? And they said, well, it's Caesar's picture on there. So Jesus responds in a way that's pretty clever. He says in verse 17, Then Jesus told them, Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Now Jesus makes a distinction here between two kingdoms, between two worlds, if we can call it that. There is the kingdom of God, and there is this worldly kingdom that we live in. And Jesus said, okay, well, here's what you do. If this picture on this coin is Caesar's, then this coin is Caesar's, and we will give it to Caesar because, well, that's what we are to do in this world. We need to pay our taxes. That's a worldly thing. And so Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, what is Caesar's? Well, these coins and these worldly things, if Caesar thinks these things are his in this world, perhaps they are because of the structure of power. Therefore, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Well, what is God's? Well, all things are God's. Everything that we have is God. Even the fact that Caesar was in power uh, was because God allowed him to be in power. But Jesus very subtly here makes a distinction between what is of the world and what is of God. And he's making this distinction between the two saying, look, as long as we are in the world, we sometimes have to live in a worldly sense. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And therefore, it is lawful sometimes for us to do things that our governments may call us to do, like pay taxes. As much as we may dislike doing that, that's not fun. But as Jesus would say, well, give to, give to the world the things that the world requires, but give to God the things that are God, which are everything. But these people, and particularly probably the Herodians, they probably put a lot of, a lot of emphasis and a lot of focus on political power of the day. But Jesus was not terribly concerned with political power. He was not concerned about the ways of the world. He was not concerned even about the ways of the religious people. We see a similar account of this in Matthew chapter 17, not the same event, but a similar event where some people came up to Peter and they said, look, does, does your master, does your teacher pay what's called a double drachma tax? Uh, now, I won't read the whole story. You can go back and find that in Matthew 17. But the double drachma tax was a tax that the Jewish people were to pay to the temple. And they asked Peter, does Jesus pay this, this tax to the temple? Does he pay this money? And Peter said, yes, he does. And Peter went to Jesus and he asked Jesus, uh, should he pay this tax? And Jesus said, well, when, when a king charges taxes to his people, does the king's children have to pay these taxes? And Peter says, well, you know, no, the, the king's children doesn't have to pay the taxes. They are free from those taxes. And Jesus says, well, so it is. The sons are free. But so that we will not offend them, Jesus tells Peter, go catch a fish. And when you catch the fish, look in his mouth, you're going to find a coin. And I want you to give that coin to him for you and me. Now, in this instance, we're not talking about something political in Matthew 17. We're talking about something that had to do with religion. The religious rules of the day that were in place that so many of these who came against Jesus were worried about following 
were that the temple tax would be paid. But even there, Jesus makes a distinction. Look, Jesus said, the sons are free. That is, there's a bunch of hoops that religious people may make you jump through or may want you to do. And this double drachma tax is not necessary. This is not something that God is requiring us to do because as sons of God, we are free from those types of religious hoops. We don't worry about religion. We worry about being obedient to God. But Jesus said, and this is interesting what he said, but so you don't offend them. So you don't offend them, get the coin and give it to them for you and me. Even though it's not required by God, even though there is freedom for those who are in Christ, those who are obedient to God, even though the sons are free, well, there are some things that we just do to not offend people. And that's an interesting statement that Jesus made. And so even there, he makes a distinction. Money is involved, but there's a distinction. Those that are really of God and those who are just religious going through the religious motions. And Jesus says, look, these people who are doing these things, they're not sons of God, but it doesn't matter. So we won't be offensive to them. We will do what they are asking us to do. And in this passage here, we see money involved again, and Jesus is making another distinction between two kingdoms, between a kingdom of the world and between a kingdom of God. And when we are in the world, there are certain things that we must do of this world, even if we don't like them. And so that's, a, that's an interesting uh, topic and question for us to think more about when we think about uh, taxes and things like that. Obviously, uh, it is not wrong for us to pay taxes even as much as we may hate it. Now, we may come to the conclusion and say, well, we don't like to pay taxes because our government uses our taxes to support things that we don't agree with. And that's true. There are many things that the government may do regardless of who our president is. And they may use our tax dollars to support things that uh, we are against as Christians. Uh, but you could make the same argument here probably for Jesus because in the taxes that, that, that he was saying to pay to uh, Rome, even, even though Rome certainly was evil in some what, of what they did, Jesus still said, look, you know, pay your taxes to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God." Jesus recognized and wanted the people here to recognize that God was over everything and ultimately all things belong to God, not to the government, not to the Caesar. Uh, Jesus was not going to submit to Caesar. Sure, he'd pay his taxes if that's what he was supposed to do, but there was one who was greater than Caesar. There was one who was higher than Caesar. And so Jesus wasn't terribly concerned with the politics of the day. Which brings us to a good question. How concerned should we be with politics in our day? Now, I understand that this is not a strictly political passage that we are looking at, but, but it, we, 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 we admit that the paying of taxes is indeed a political thing. And sometimes, sometimes political things uh, also coincide with, with, with Christian things, with godly things. And so... As Christians, we may not have a desire to be involved in political debates and political issues and things of politics, but it is inevitable that there will be clash between Christians and, and political views because many things that Christians hold to be true and right in the eyes of God and in the words of Scripture are sometimes things that those in politics uh, go against. There are some political stances and things that are done by politicians and by presidents and by leaders that, 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 that conflict with what Christians believe God's word calls for us to do. 
And so when we are trying to work through those types of things, we need to be prayerful that God would help us to know what stands we need to take. When do we need to take a stand? Should we be involved in politics? And if so, how much politics should we be involved in? Uh, it, it would be easy to say that Christians should never be involved in politics, and that may or may not be true, but it's almost impossible because there are certain things that politically people will say are acceptable that we as Christians will have to say based on God's word, no, these things are not acceptable. And in those instances, we are, we are in, a, in, a, in a conflict with what is political, whether we like it or not. And so the best thing for us to do is do what we must do to obey the law within reason so long as uh, we, do not, uh, we are not involved in sin. If the law is telling us to do something that is strictly evil and is strictly forbidden in Scripture, then in those instances we may need to take more of a stand. But there are some laws, that, whether we like them or not, such as paying our taxes, uh, that we must simply submit to those things. But what we must realize as Christians is that we do, not, we do not submit to, to those who are in power politically in, in, in our world today as the end-all, be-all of authority. They are simply human authorities that God has allowed and put into place where they are. But God is the ultimate authority. We respect our leaders because God calls us to do that, to pray for our leaders because he has put them in charge. And it's good for us to do that when we speak of our political elected officials. Uh, in our case, it, it's a, uh, a president. In other countries, it may be a king or a queen or whatever it may be. There are different, different forms of authority in different countries. But as Christians, we should submit to those authorities uh, so long as we can without directly sinning against God's word. But, but, but our authorities in our countries that we live in should not be what we put all of our focus and our faith and our trust in. We respect our leaders. We are no doubt probably all proud of our military men and women who, who work to protect us and, 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 and fight wars to, 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 in some instances, help other people around the world. We are very proud of those men and women uh, that do that. We are respectful of our leaders. But our hope and our security should not be just in our worldly leaders. It should not just be in politics. It should not just be in our military. Because if that's what our hope and our trust in, then we are in trouble. Because we will have bad leaders, and we will, we will, we will perhaps have a military that will be defeated should, should wars break out and conflicts break out. And if our hope is in those who are in political control, then we are in trouble, brothers and sisters in Christ. We respect those in power, but as Christians, we look to a higher power. And so we need to be careful when we talk about politicians and we talk about those in leadership and those in control that we do not put all of our focus and our trust in them. We trust God no matter where we are, whether we live in these United States of America or whether we live in China or whether we live in Africa or whether we live in Australia. It doesn't matter where we live. No matter where we are, God is the highest power. God is the one in control. God is the one who we look to for our success, for our strength, for all the things 
that, that, that go on in this world, we know that it will be God who will deliver us and not politicians. Now, we want to make sure that we understand that. Now, we vote, praise the Lord. We have a, well, the freedom to do that. And if you want to vote, vote. If you don't want to vote, don't vote. But, but for those who get put in political power, I think that sometimes when we see new people put into political power, we think, okay, maybe this is the one who's going to solve our problems. And maybe so. Maybe God is going to use them to solve some problems we have. Perhaps God, of course, has put them into place and I suppose it's not wrong for us to be excited when we see someone who represents Christian values and is making an effort to push forth those Christian values. That's not wrong, I don't think, for us to, uh, to, to be excited about those things. But we must never put our faith and trust in a political leader because there is no political leader who will ever, who will ever be in control of things of this world. There's no political leader who will ever deliver us from all of the evils of this world. There's no amount of laws and policies that are going to make this world what it needs to be. There's only one way that our world will be what it needs to be, and that's when people's hearts are changed. If we are looking for political officers to be the light of the world, then we will always live in darkness. Because Scripture doesn't say that our politicians and our kings and our queens and those in power are the light of the world, does it? It does not. The Bible says that we, brothers and sisters in Christ, are the light of the world. If we want to see change in the world, that change does not come by our vote. That change comes from us living for Jesus Christ. And when people see the light, when people are introduced to Jesus Christ when people hear God's word, guess what happens? People's hearts begin to change. And when people's hearts begin to change, our world begins to change. There will be no change in our world if there is not a change in the hearts of the people who live in this world. And so we live in a world that's full of politics. As Christians, we live in the world, but we are not of the world. We live around political leaders. We may vote for those political leaders, but we cannot ever trust our political leaders to be our salvation because our salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And these people that are coming before Jesus, they're concerned about following Caesar, about doing what Caesar asks, about living for Caesar, about following the political rules of the day. And Jesus said, no, there's something bigger than that. There's something bigger than our politics. There's something bigger than the Caesar of Rome. And that would have come with a shock, as a shock to some of these people who were around Jesus. They thought Caesar was it. He was the one, the most powerful one in all of probably the world at that time. Caesar was the one with all the power, but he wasn't. Because Jesus points out that God is the one with all the power. God is the one who was in control. And so what do we look to for power in our life? What do we look to for salvation in our life? What do we look to for safety in our life? Well, last week we talked about the fact that, uh, that sometimes we, we like to trust in things of this world, but sometimes we think a little too highly of ourselves and don't think highly enough of God. 
That's what we saw last week in the parable of the vineyard owner. God had provided everything and gave it to these who were tending the vineyards, but they didn't want to submit to the one who had provided all for them. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. They wanted to be in control. And so every time the vineyard owner would send a servant, they would kill him. They would beat him. And then finally, the vineyard owner sent his son. And even still, they wouldn't listen. They killed the vineyard owner's son and sent him out of the vineyard because they wanted to be in control. They thought that they were better than the vineyard owner. They didn't realize that all that they had was from the vineyard owner. Now, the vineyard owner was God, and God has prepared all things. And God wants us to acknowledge him as the creator and know that he has prepared for and provided for us in all ways that there are. But there are many people in the world today who deny God. There are many people in the world today who want to be in control, who want to be their own God and do what they want to do when they want to do it. And so we talked last week about what do we need to do when we have that tendency or that desire in our heart or maybe we, we think we are in control. Well, the, the cure and the solution for that sin is that we humble ourselves before God. And that's what we talked about last week. That's what we ended on, right? We ended at the foot of the cross. We humble ourselves to realize that we are not greater than God, but that God is greater than all things. And man, what a freeing thing it is when we realize that God is in control. And so we are to humble ourselves before God, knowing that we are sinners. And we talked about last week that that is where we start. We aim a little lower and think a little less about ourselves. We humble ourselves before God to the foot of the cross, and then we are prepared for life. Then we are prepared to start on life's journey. Then we are prepared to do what God has called us to do. So what do we shoot for? Once we've humbled ourselves before God and, and, and we realize we are nothing but sinners, well, then, then how are we to live our life at that point once we are Christians, once we are followers of Jesus Christ? How do we live our life? Well, we get educated, right? We want to be a little smarter. We want to know a little more. We want to have, we want to have good jobs, right? Well, we need to aim a little higher. We want to have our homes. We want to have our wealth. We want to have our worldly security in a sense. And those are things that are good for us to do. Even as Christians, we have those goals in our life, and those goals are not bad, but uh, we need to aim a little higher. Uh, maybe we need to uh, look to our politicians, right? We want, to, we want our world to be good. Our goal is to have a peaceful world, and we, we look to those politicians, those in political power, those who are in authority. But we have to aim a little higher. Well, what's higher than, than the highest official in this world? Well, there's not much in this world that's higher than the highest officials, than the highest kings and the highest queens and the highest presidents. So we must go past this world. We must look a little higher. We must look to God himself. We must look to the right hand of God, to Jesus Christ. We must aim that high. That is our aim, brothers and sisters in Christ. We humble ourselves from all the things in this world, from all the the control that we want to take and all the things that we think that, that, that we need to do without acknowledging God, we humble ourselves and say, God, forgive me for that. But once we've humbled ourselves and we've gotten rid of all of those feelings, we, we need to set our sights for higher things, but things that are much higher than this world, things that are God. And God is what we aim for. The right hand of God in Jesus Christ is what we aim for. And so we live in this world, we have these goals, we have these things that we want to do, and we want to have homes and cars and monies and jobs and, and all of these things, and those things are fine because we are in this world. 
We want good politicians. We have politicians. We respect those politicians. We have good militaries. And we praise God that they are there uh, to protect us in the ways that they can. But we, we look past those things because there's something higher than those things that we seek our comfort in, that we seek our strength in, that we seek our deliverance in, that we seek our salvation in. And that is higher than anything this world has to offer. It is only Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. So as Christians, we set our sights past the things of this world. That's what Jesus wanted these people to do. Look, don't worry about Caesar. Don't worry about taxes. Don't worry about paying taxes to the government. Don't worry about these religious things. Uh, when we talk about the, the, the double drachma tax, don't worry about these worldly things, but realize that you are someone bigger than this world. You are a son of God. Therefore, you need to live your life as a son of God, and you need to live your life following the example of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so what are you aiming at today? Are you aiming at just finding a little bit of security and success in the world? Are you aiming at that security and that success to come from a political officer? If you are, you need to aim a little higher. You need to aim at the throne of God. You need to aim at the example of Jesus Christ. You need to aim high. You need to aim in a way that you want to live like Jesus Christ, to do all you can to follow his examples, to love like he did, to have compassion like he did, to forgive like he did. That's what we aim for, brothers and sisters in Christ. We live for this world, but we don't want the world ever to overshadow Jesus Christ. We have powerful people in this world, but they will never overshadow the power of God. No matter how strong or how weak political leaders may look, no matter how good or how bad things in this world may look, God is all-powerful. And so we look at Him. We see the things that are going on in the world, but we look past the things that are going in the world because we serve one who is in control of this world. And so we must look up. We must look higher. We must not look out. We must not look level at the things that we see, but we must look up to something better. We must look up to Jesus Christ who has conquered this world and he has ascended to sit at the right hand of God. And so when things look bad, look up. When things look bad, don't look at your worldly success, your worldly security, but look past those things. Look to something perfect. Look to, something, look to Jesus Christ and look to his perfection and let your life try to reach that perfection. We never will. We're not perfect in this world, but that's what we strive for. We strive for security and power that comes through Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. And I hope today that you are looking to him. But if you're not, if you're looking at things of the world, then look up. You need to aim a little higher. And the highest we can aim is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now. We thank you for these words. And I pray, God, that you would help us to learn from them and grow from them, dear Lord. Help us when we see Jesus in your scriptures, not to miss him, not to try to explain him away, not to close the pages, to shut him up, dear Lord. God, that's what these Pharisees and Herodians and these others of the day tried to do. They wanted to shut Jesus up. They wanted to get him gone. They, they wanted to continue in their worldly religious practices. They want to continue following their worldly leaders, God. But help us not to be satisfied with just what's of this world, God. This world's a mess. We don't want to be satisfied with religion, and we don't want to be satisfied with political leaders, dear Lord. We want to be satisfied with Christianity. We want to be satisfied with Jesus Christ, God. We want our hearts to be right. God, we don't want to go through motions, but God, we want to live for Jesus. And so I pray that you help us to do that. God, maybe our sights are a little low. Maybe we have humbled ourselves before you and we are yours, but God, maybe we're still 
focus too much on the world, God, help us to aim a little higher. Help us to, to aim our sights at your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that if there's one in this room that's never put their faith in Jesus, that they would do so today, that they would trust him as their Lord and Savior. And God, I pray that they would repent, that they would humble themselves and they'd come before you. And God, those here that are yours, I pray that we would always keep our eyes on you. God, it's easy to be distracted. It's easy to focus on things of the world because, man, we go through some tough stuff, dear Lord, in our lives and, and in our world. But God, help us to know that you are greater than our world and help us to trust you for our security and to trust you for our deliverance. And God, even the worst situations, God, you can change them because you can change hearts. So God, help us to be a light to the world, those who are yours. Help us to take that light into the world that people can see Jesus, that they can see love, that they can see grace and forgiveness through what Jesus did on the cross. And God, I pray that you would change hearts. I pray that you would bring revival in this county, in this, in this state, in this country, and in this world, dear Lord. And God, you can do it. You can make something good out of something bad. We see it time and again in your word. And so God, I pray that you would just work good in this world for your kingdom. And let those who are yours, God, be obedient to help you in carrying that out. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's service. To learn more about Jesus, call or text Pastor Shan at 601-657-0180 or email him at shanvn at me.com. You can also visit us at www.enterprisebaptist.church or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ebcliberty. We hope that you have been blessed by today's service.